This is Sending Signals, a show about music and creativity. I'm your host, Matt Royal. Before we begin, a note on this episode. It's a deep dive into the movie The Vast of Night. There will be some spoilers, not to the point where you won't enjoy the movie, but you may want to see it first. It's an Amazon Studios movie and is available on Amazon Prime. It's a 12A in the UK and a PG-13 in the States, albeit a mild one, I'd say. But if you have any concerns or are watching with kids, of course, check the content advisory. Enjoy. I'm fascinated with the concept of Hollywood sweeping into a small town and the effect that must have. Nathan Price was a farm boy in Whitney, Texas, and then production for The Vast of Night came to town and he got involved. The movie was a night shoot, so Nathan pulled watermelons during the day and worked on set at night and was instrumental in helping realise an incredible tracking shot that appears in the movie. Here's production designer Adam Dietrich. Yeah, there's uh, this kid named Nathan Price. He's awesome, definitely super talented. Never worked on a movie before, but wanted to be a filmmaker. And him and his father, uh, his father is a welder, and so he's learned how to weld. And And Nathan really led the charge. Originally, this device that was going to carry the camera was essentially going to be like a motorized skateboard or really longboard. But uh, it failed miserably. I mean, we tested, we kept working it over and over. This guy, Caleb Henry, and a guy, Marcus Ross, and Nathan were working on this longboard, and it just wasn't working. And finally, Nathan and his father figured out a go-kart type circumstance that gave us four wheels, that kept us low to the ground. And they uh, used their welding experience to make it functional for what we were trying to do with it. So all of this kid's natural ex- life experience and his passion for film kind of culminated uh, to make this shot happen. And, and nobody knew Nathan before we landed in Whitney, Texas. So he was, he was just a small town kid who always loved movies. And then we land in his small town. And it is exactly why I like to make movies in small towns. You know, Nathan was given access to an industry that he might not have ever had access to. And because we're an indie film, we had a problem and Nathan was a participant in finding the solution and then ends up being kind of the initial voice at least. I mean, there were several people that made this happen, but the initial voice to figure out how to make it happen, you know? And I don't know how old he was, I think he was 19, you know? And now now Nathan's working in the business. He, he has a real desire to learn all the different aspects of the craft. And so he started working with a company here in Dallas called MPS that rents equipments. So he he knows all the lighting equipment that an industry uses right now, all the camera equipment that the industry uses right now, and is really kind of becoming kind of a uh, incredibly smart, young, knowledgeable craftsman. He, he definitely contributed to this movie in a huge way when he wasn't working with watermelons. The Vast of Night is one of my favorite movies of the year, 
and it's been a good year for movies. It's set over the course of one evening in New Mexico in the late 50s and centres around a local teenage radio DJ named Everett and his friendship with Faye, a switchboard operator at the telephone exchange. Most of the town are down at the school gymnasium for the basketball game and strange audio signals are being picked up by our heroes. It's an atmospheric and absorbing piece of cinema. It's a bit like Aaron Sorkin writing an episode of A Twilight Zone, but it's a unique and beautiful movie. I wanted to dive into how the movie was made and the stories behind it, and I wasn't disappointed. Not everyone I spoke to had great insights. Here's musician Colton Turner, who had some songs used in the movie. I haven't seen the whole thing. Everybody else in the band has seen it, pretty much. <laughs> My brother's seen it, everybody else has seen it. I've seen parts of it, but... I still need to sit down and watch it. We always fight over the TV at my house. Somebody steals it and puts it in their room, so I'm waiting until I get like a good two hours by myself so I can watch it. You'll hear more from Colton and his band later, as well as more from production designer Adam Dietrich. And we'll also chat with Jared Bulmer and Eric Alexander, who created the stunning score for the film. But first, you're going to hear from one of the film's stars, Jake Horowitz, who plays Everett. Here's a clip from the movie. Put him through now, Faye. Come on, please. Sir, we are connecting you now. Hello, sir. This is Everett Sloan. Can you hear me? Hello, yes. Uh, how are you? I'm good. Can I get your name? Yes, my name is Billy. Billy. Okay, thank you, Billy. And I need to tell you first, we don't allow any swear words or, or inappropriate stories on the air. I could lose my job. And I don't have a delay here, and I want to put you right through onto the air. But I need you to promise me that we're safe in doing so. Of course. I understand. Uh, I don't swear at all. Okay, I'm breaking the rules to do this, so please, you know, be honest to me. Maybe ask me if you think something needs to be discussed off the air, and I'll go to a break and put on a record, all right? Okay, I can do that. All right, we are going on the air here shortly in three, two, one. And we're back, everybody. Sorry to cut that last song short, but we do have a caller here who may know something. Now, Billy, would you mind telling us all what you know? Hey, man, how you doing? Not too bad. How are you, mate? Pretty good, pretty good. How are you coping at the moment? Pretty well. I got um I'm from New York and I've been in the city up till now, but this past week I've been away at this little lake um in upstate New York with uh, my family. So it's been nice just breathing some some fresh air. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so so pretty well. Yeah. Are you are you at Juilliard? I am, yeah. I finished my, my first year this past year. A quarter of it was over over Zoom. <laughs> It's crazy. I gave yeah. you. I gave you a majoring in drama. Yes. Yeah. It's weird because um, it feels like so much. There's so much stuff that can be learned academically and remotely, but acting feels like you need to interact. You need an audience, and you need experience, which yeah. it must be really difficult. Really weird. I mean, really weird. I, I feel like we did learn things. You know, like it wasn't a total waste of time, but it was just so hard to do. Like like a scene class yeah. over the computer. But we, I, I just kept trying to remember that as weird as it felt, there's that, there's that famous scene in one of the star Wars movies where, um, or what's his name? A- a- Anakin and uh, whoever he's falling in love with. I totally forget. They, you know, they did this love scene and then they were never on set together and George, the whole thing. And they, they completely were, were, were acting off of, you know, whatever, like a first AD or somebody standing in. So, I mean, I feel like there's stuff to be learned from it. It just was tough. 
<laughs> yeah. It's not what you signed up for and paid for either, you know? It's not it, it it's not what we paid for. Which <laughs> is the the cold truth. <laughs> I wanted to talk cuz I think you're the th- I think you're the first actor I've had on a podcast and it, it's interesting because what one of the things I wanted to try and explore of a series is what creativity actually is. And mm. acting fascinates me because often you're using someone else's words and you're serving the director's vision. Is it hard to reconcile all of that and make a role feel like it's yours? Wow, that's a great question. Wow. Um, I, I guess I've been in situations where that really has been hard. Um, and I, I think that a lot of it has to do with, um, well, it has to do with, I guess, how like deeply you connect to the material personally, but also the kind of director that you have. And there are some directors who, who will like consciously or subconsciously try to control you in a way. But I, I will say that, you know, it, like it, it can be a problem, but with, with Vast of Night, it really wasn't. And I, I think for, because I, deeply connected to the script and the dialogue as soon as I read it I was like oh I hope to god I get to do this like I I I know how to do this I uh, and but but also Andrew seemed to like encourage my own creativity like a, a thing that I keep remembering is that after I got it and we had skyped a couple times he was like he asked me to write out some of my own um um, reportage, like like just my own monologues that Everett might say. So I had to do the history. I had to look up what was happening on in November of 1958, like so that I could do this. And he also asked me to come up with um, like uh, my own cigarette brand. And it just totally was like, it needs to be totally made up, uh, but you come up with it and I'll have the art department, you know, design it for you. And, you, and they, they got that for me. They got a little box with this thing, Yorktown Gold, which is totally made up thing. But it like, that like things like that mattered to him. And so, and I was given the opportunity to sort of dive in and make it more my own. So it's a great question because it can be a problem, but it was really not with, with this, this movie. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen the finished movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first time I saw it was at a festival with, with other people, which was a crazy nerve wracking experience. But yeah, I've seen it about three times now. Was it, jarring the first time you saw it did it feel did it look different to the movie that you had in your head based on your experience on set yeah totally I mean because this is another with this movie it's like the acting of it and then the like making of it behind the scenes I think were really different like this is this is a sci-fi movie in real life but for me and Sierra it was a a realism movie it was like a Richard Linklater walk and talk you know slice of life movie so in in the acting of it it really just felt like uh I mean we knew where it was going it wasn't like a shock but the experience of doing it felt more just like like living through something as if it were you know like really naturally happening and sort of slow and the weird conversations that happen and then it gets yeah, like melded together with the music and everything and it becomes this whole other beast. It doesn't feel like a sci-fi movie. It kind of feels misleading to describe it in those terms as well because, as you say, it's so, um, you know, I've heard Aaron Sorkin mentioned, you know, it's kind of, it feels more in that territory, but it just happens to have a UFO. (laughs) 
that's I'm so glad you say that because that's exactly what I think. My friend texted me yesterday. He was like, he was watching it and he said, Oh, the dialogue is amazing. It's like Harper Lee meets Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> that's so true. It's exactly what it feels like. <laughs> First watch as well, it's kind of strange because so much, so much of it is shot from behind. So particularly that first 10 minutes, I was struggling to understand a lot of the dialogue because you haven't even, you, you can't even sort of read read the lips. And, and there's obviously a long scene where you're, you're following them walking down the street as well. But again, you're sort of behind them um, and you've got this very dense dialogue. Often you've got a cigarette in your mouth as well, which is sort of distorting it further. And it, it kind of, t- it takes, um, I feel like it takes a couple of watches to sort of yeah. un- unravel it. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the the thing about that, which I kind of love, is that it's like I think what Andrew's trying to do, or what the movie is doing in the in the first few minutes, is like telling you to listen. <laughs> like, it's like saying like you you have to start listening because the whole movie ends up being about listening, either over the phone or to people's stories, or it like sets up this theme that that you're gonna have to like use your ears for this movie. And I, so I, I kind of love that. And I, I know it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like I, I said the lines and I'm listening and I'm like, well, what's happening? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. There's, there seems to be, this, I've heard this movie talked about as being almost like um, a stage play in some ways, because there's, there's a few main settings and it's very dialogue driven. But then I know that Andrew wanted it to be a movie that you could almost listen to with the, visuals off it almost works as a radio player as well but equally it's one of the most visual films i've seen because it's so it's so idiosyncratic and you of course have that incredible go-kart tracking shot and you have literally a, a ufo at the end and um and it's kind of hard to it, it kind of works on on all those levels but i feel like you need all those elements for it to be what it is yeah, I, I yeah he, he he always talked about that that it was only going to work if it really if it really married all I think the beautiful thing about the movie is how many influences it actually marries together it's like it's like early Spielberg and a radio play and Richard Linklater and it's like yeah. all these things are coming together and and also that's why we were able to shoot it in so short a time is because you have these long scenes of dialogue where in one night you take you shoot 18 19 pages of the movie yeah. So that for three other nights you're working on a quarter of the page where it just says the camera goes through town. Like it, it was, it, I think it's designed and scheduled to be able to be shot in a really short amount of time because of those long dialogue scenes. Yeah. When you first looked at the script, how did you perceive the film? What, what, what drew you to it and kind of what did you think it was? And did that differ from what it ended up being? Um, I think it, it is kind of remarkably similar to how I saw it when I first read it. And, and especially when I first talked to Andrew, like he described shots, even down to like little shots of me and Sierra walking through the dark, talking about science, like it, almost exactly as again, and, and Andrew had done a lot of location scouting by that point too. So it's like, he, he kind of had a lot of it in his head. When I first read it though, the thing that I could tell just from reading it is that he was going to want to do long takes which I, which really drew me to it because I, I, there's just no like kind of more gratifying feeling as an actor than to like, to do a scene that lasts four or five, six minutes on camera and to get one that you like after, you know, 
it, it just feels because you you sort of forget that the camera's on when when you're you're able to just sort of live in it. And so I I love that I, I could tell from reading it that that was going to be a focus of this. And uh, yeah, I, I was I was so so excited by that. With those long scenes, was there was there one that was particularly hard to get right? Mm. Um, I don't remember. I mean, the the scene on the phone with Billy was a few times um, just because you know Billy wasn't cast. Like it was just the I think the um the first AD reading the lines, and so there were like timing things, and he and he went from a couple different angles on that. So we ended up doing that a bunch of times, but but honestly, it was like we had real time to rehearse, and and me and Sierra genuinely loved the movie. So it's like we were, you know, you know, so we were excited for those days when the takes were long. I guess actually the one thing that did take a long time was the shot where me and Sierra are, uh, I'm, we're we're we're, t- we're doing the tapes and looking for the the tape with the sound, and that machine was like on its last legs, <laughs> like one more day and it would not not have worked so that was a a few times just to get the you know the technicalities of that right it was a little complicated yeah and and it's properly tactile isn't it you're literally trying to thread a reel-to-reel which isn't a which isn't a skill that we have (laughs) (laughs) no no surely not and a skill that i learned temporarily and no longer have but (laughs) but for two weeks i definitely knew how to do it (laughs) did you already have a, a fascination with that era of radio did you have any kind of point of reference with that I, I gotta say not not even a little bit it was like it was part of what was so cool it was that you know I was just attracted to the to the writing of it you could just tell that something is incredibly written and then and then I learned more about the period but I had no idea of these guys lives or anything and then you know it was like YouTube and, and research and just shows Oh, there's just so, so much stuff on these guys and, and the way they sounded and their characters and the music that they played. And so, but yeah, from beforehand, I, I had no, no sort of knowledge of it. Yeah. Uh, did you learn anything about yourself from the project? I guess I, 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 I think for me, Everett's um, journey that I wanted to capture was from cynicism to wonder. And I always felt that was important and, I wanted this to be, you know, a guy who really thought he knew everything, who gets totally, totally shocked. And like, so I guess I just, you know, what I, I, I just, in my life, I guess, want to live more in the place of, of not knowing <laughs> and, and, and in, and in wonder that, you know, playing somebody who, who, who thinks he knows everything can remind you that, oh, that's an easy sort of place to slip into. <laughs> and, and it's really more fun to not know. And I, I will also say that uh, a friend of mine texted me, he was like, you know, I know you and, and I think that you and me both are kind of afraid to behave like Everett does in the beginning. It's like, he's so rude and, and flippant and swaggery. And it's totally true. It's like, I'm totally afraid to be like that in my regular life. I feel like no one would hire me. No one would like me. My family wouldn't hang out with me. No one, you know, it's like, so it was like this chance to be, you know, as, as sort of completely different and, and brave in a different way that, that was really fun. So I would say, yeah, those, those are the kind of two, two things I think I learned about myself. Yeah. It's hard to read at first because you've got that scene in the in the car park where, where they're going to all the cars and, and interviewing people as they turn up for the game. 
But there's a moment where he, he seems like he's he's very flippant and he's like, oh, what do you, th-? they're like, is this going to be on the radio? And it's like, what, you think we go around interviewing, you know, people like people like you eating hot dogs in a car? Like, correct? Uh, but, and you think, oh, wow, that's like a bit harsh. But then uh, the way they react, it kind of, it makes you realise that they understand what he's like and that they're not, yeah. take, they're not taking him seriously. And yeah. you, you kind of need their reaction to like, get that and then he yes he he messes around with um the, the little girl um in the back so now you're old enough to be here and, and and then you start you start to understand uh, yeah how he comes across and how people perceive it and it's not it, it, quite as harsh as you as you think you know it's so true the, the the reactions are so important and i guess also everett could never exist without Faye because like that's part of how the audience sees him too is that this girl sort of likes him you know and it's like without her admiration and her desire to be friends and like curiosity, I think that he would be, you know, closer to like, what is, what is this? What is this guy? You know? Yeah. And that, that journey from like cynicism to, you know, to that acceptance at, at the end, is kind of weird because quite late in the film, I guess he's still fighting against it because he comes out of, there's a scene with mate where they go and see Mabel. Mm. And even at that point, he's, he's clearly like, I can't accept this. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's like, and it's like, maybe I can't work out if, did you play it as if he believes her, but he doesn't want to believe it? Or did you, did you play it as, no, he's really not sure. Um, in my, trying to remember back, I know, I think that I, I think that leaving her house when I'm like, no, this is crazy. I, I was just thinking about like having an experience that sort of shook me up, but not believing it, you know, like, having a really weird experience that I don't think is true. But the, but the moment that I remember being a turning point is in the, um, in the car when, when someone's like, what'd she say? And I think, I think the, the line is like, she said that there's people up there and they, you know, and he's like looking out the window. And that I think is the, the, the crack in the wall when he's like, maybe. And, and, and that he does, really doesn't want it to be, to be true, but maybe. And, and that was the important, an important moment for me uh, in, in finding that arc and it not just being like, I don't believe it all the way through. Yeah. Has making this film shaped what you want to do in the future mm. in some ways? Yeah, I mean, not, not, from like a, not from a genre perspective, I gotta say. Like, I think both, both me and Andrew feel like, it's not like sci-fi is our our like home genre. It's not, it's not like why I got into movies or acting or anything, you know, it's like just a beautiful genre of filmmaking. So I, not, not from that perspective, but certainly from the perspective of like, just great writing and great and, and great, like I got spoiled, you know, it's like this, this script is so good and the dialogue flows so well. And I will say that I, I, I it does make me want to do more movies. Um, that are that are that are talky and that are you know some movies aren't which I love too and you can make great movies like Arrival I think is a great movie about communication that actually doesn't even, doesn't even have that many words it's like you, you can really achieve amazing things in films without words that I that I want to do but also it's like Sorkin and Linklater and, and some of these guys who you know who know how to like build characters into words it, it, this movie did just make me want to do more of that because it's so exciting and it's so fun. Well, I've really loved the movie, mate. It's uh, one of my favourite films of the year. Genuinely, uh, it it blew me away. So, um, just 
congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, man. Thank you for reaching out. So, so, so fun to, to talk to you. I'm so glad to do it. Jake was a great guest. I really enjoyed talking with him. I thought it was interesting what he said about the first 10 minutes of the film, kind of telling you you need to listen carefully. You may have gathered that this movie would work as a radio play and still be a special experience. However, it looks so good as well. And this is not a high budget movie. It was apparently made for under a million dollars. For a comparison, Jake mentioned in the interview a movie Arrival, which is also fantastic. That movie had a budget of $47 million. The upcoming Christopher Nolan movie has a budget in excess of $200 million. So how do you make a movie like The Vast of Night look as good as it does for that kind of money? Enter a production designer, Adam Dietrich. You heard him at the start. Here's some more of our conversation. Hey. Hey. How are you, Matt? I'm all right, Adam. How are you? I'm good. Sorry for my closed quarters. I've got... Uh... I've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old, so they're they're running around downstairs as I sneak up and uh, sneak off to do this. Oh wow! Thank you so much for doing yeah. it. I really yeah. appreciate it. You have kids? I don't know. Um, been married fifteen years tomorrow, but no kids. Wow! Good job. <laughs> wow! You really you're a strategic man. <laughs> Where in the country are you exactly? I'm in Fort Worth, Texas. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we, Vast of Night, we shot about 45 minutes from my home in a place called Whitney. Yeah. And Whitney is right next door to Hillsboro, where uh, Wes Anderson shot his first movie, Bottle Rocket. Okay. Yeah, so, and, and so we shot in both Hillsboro and Whitney, but they were very close. Most of our crews stayed in hotels because it was about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes from their home. But I had just had my first boy, my first child. And so I drove both ways each day, which was about 45 to an hour. Uh, so I could go home and be with the kid at night or I guess uh, actually in the morning because uh, we shot overnight. For those that don't know, how do you, how do you describe to people what you do? Well, I'm a unique bird because I'm, I'm what you call the multi-hyphenate. And that just means that I do several different functions. I produce, I design, I direct my own content. I, I first AD'd on a lot of projects uh, in my life. So because of where I am in the world in Texas, uh, this is a little bit more like the wild, wild west. Um, and so our content is generated a little bit different than LA and New York. And um, because I've always been into the arts, uh, a lot of people that I went to college with or, or even high school uh, that moved to LA and New York saw me as a director. So they would hire me to be a first AD to help run a set, talk about time, to deal with the time on a set and make sure that we were getting the best creative within the time. But then in Texas, I had built a career as a production designer because uh, Bill Paxton and Tom Huckabee had walked into my theater one day and uh, Tom uh, said, I really love your set, who built it. And, uh, and I had, I was directing my show, but I had built the set because we had no money. Shortly thereafter, they invited me to do a project with them. And, uh, and then that led me down this path of being a production designer in Texas. So uh, I do a lot of different functions, but a production designer in general, they are in charge of everything that's aesthetic in the movie. So, you know, specifically with The Vast of Night, you're dealing with the period film 
And uh, our our director and our, our partner, Andrew Patterson, he has a huge skill set. I mean, uh, from, from writing to cinematography to editing to uh, music, uh, he is a baller. You know, he really, he really gets it and he's put in the time to get it. But one skill set that he just doesn't have is aesthetics. He's not a person that walks in a room and says, I care what color that wall is, or I understand what uh, 1958 looked like, you know? So, so then when we met and I had such a passion for the film, uh, I was brought to the project by a, an executive producer who I had designed for in the past. And uh, when I read the script, I just fell in love with it immediately. And we started talking about it both from an aesthetic standpoint, which is, which is what we sat down to talk about. But I was also talking about from a narrative standpoint and um, started cheerleading from the day I read the script. Because as you know now, and I think a lot of people see, this is a really special film. And it was there in the script. You could see it. You could feel it. I visually could see it. A lot of the things that are really special in the film, he already knew he wanted to do those things. And that was going to demand us shaping a modern into a 1958 town uh, on a short budget. So that was a big part of the conversation. But also a lot of the conversation was why we're going to do that and narratively what's so special about it, which is what ultimately led me to be a producer on the project too. But a, a producer, a, a production designer, I'm so long-winded, a production designer helps establish the aesthetic of a film, makes choices about color palette, and uh, makes choices about what props we should use, what props we shouldn't use, uh, how those props will be used, uh, makes choices about uh, the shape of buildings. Ultimately, in an indie film, they, they participate in finding the locations uh, to some degree so that they can help shape the aesthetic from existing locations. And they also are in charge of building the sets, designing the sets and building the sets that will play as locations within the movies. Yeah. It looks incredible. And is it considered to be a micro budget film? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I guess it would be. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, what we know as a group is that it was it premiered at Slam Dance and Slam Dance films are a million dollars or under. So, uh, the film the film was made for a million dollars or less. Okay. Um, so you shot, I think, was it for 17 days in Whitney? Yeah, 17 days in, yeah, 17 days at all, at, 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 in total, but Whitney and Hillsborough, yeah. Well, I guess it's 17 nights, really, because you worked, was it six till six, I read? Yeah, yeah. I can't remember if that was from the start or not, but yeah. What is involved in taking over a town to make a movie for 17 days? I've, there's, an, there's an Alan Alda film called Sweet Liberty, which is about um, Hollywood coming to this small town and yeah. kind of production taking place there. And I've got this sort of romanticized notion of what it must be like for the inhabitants of this little town to suddenly have Hollywood show up. You know, how does that, can, can you, can you describe what that's like the effect that has on a town? I'm fascinated by it. Well, I think I, I, I first I, I, I think it's uh, not very romantic, so I don't want to uh, dispel your your <laughs> uh, dream there. But I will say that I've made almost every movie that I've ever produced or consulted on in a small town. And it's because uh, there isn't an experience like it. When you make a studio film, when you're on location with 150 people and you're a 
your General Motors that came to town, it's not the same experience as the Vassal Night where you have, you know, 30 to 50 people that show up in a town. They're passionately there integrating themselves into the town on a daily basis. They're eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They're going to the bars. They're going to the coffee shops. And it does infuse a small town with a sense of motivation, uh, with a sense of that childhood dream of making movies. I mean, you know, if I wasn't in the movie business and a film company shows up in town to make a movie, I'm instantly transported to watching E.T. for the first time or, you know, uh, experiencing one of those early kind of Hallmark films and thinking I'm a part of it. And, and that's exactly what happens is, you know, when we went to Whitney and Hillsboro, the city manager at Hillsboro, Jerry Barker, the chief of police in Whitney, Chief Bentley, the city councils. Uh, city shop owners, they immediately uh, opened their doors and and started talking to us about what can we do to help accomplish this. And and, and so in a way, it was like having a back lot uh, open to us, you know, and uh, kind of like being on the set of uh, Back to the Future. You know, you can go to Hill Valley still on one of the studios and kind of walk the town. And, and it was like being in Hill Valley. You know, it was like our personal Hill Valley uh, to the point in Whitney. I had this desire. Uh, I didn't want to see the white stripes that people paint on pavement for parking spaces. And we couldn't get rid of them. And so I had this thought of let's put down dirt. Let's put down gravel. And the chief of police uh, in Whitney helped me make that happen. He, he got me the permission. He kind of cleared the red tape and uh, we laid down this gravel uh, with very primitive tools. And then at the end, I said, I don't know if I can afford to pull this gravel up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the chief of police said, you know what? It's great where it is. In a, in a week or two weeks, we're going to have this annual festival called Pioneer Days. And we, wanna, we always wanted to put down gravel anyway. And so they, they used it for their festival two weeks later, and the city picked it up a few weeks after that. So, you know, they really went out of their way to help us make some stuff happen that, that our budget couldn't have uh, accommodated. The switchboard, you know, the, where, where Faye has her conversations for a lot of the time. Yeah. We needed that to be practically uh, in a space uh, that connected to that downtown road uh, because of certain shots in the film. And so we found uh, a building that we liked, uh, me and Andrew, and uh, me and Melissa Kirkendall, Melissa Kirkendall was the other producer on the film and was you know, absolutely essential to the making of this movie and figuring out how those numbers work and creative solutions uh, along the way because of financial issues. But we, we found this shop owner and, and Melissa and I worked out a deal with her that we would build a set in her back room. And every day, Every morning after the night that we shot, my team would take the switchboard out, take the walls down, and return her space to her. And then when we would shoot again, we would come an hour and a half before we shot. We would set the walls up. We would put the switchboards back in. So it was, you know, I think indie film and anybody that's tried to make a movie knows this. You have to do certain things that you'll never be asked to do. In, in what we would say is like a traditional or an industry standard project. But in this project, you know, we had to do so many things that, that allowed us the access to the places and made the numbers 
that we had to work with, not take away from the vision. So, and you can, it's what I love about a film is it just it feels like an immersive world, and yeah. because it's more or less in real time, I think it's about ninety five minutes condensed into ninety. And you can just feel the tactility of a place. And you, of course, have that incredible tracking shot where you go from the switchboard to the gymnasium. You look round at the game and then you go out and then back yeah. and then over to a radio station. And I guess, you know, I'm guessing there's very little in terms of computer trickery of that. I guess you're really seeing the geography of the town that you were using. There's a little trickery. There's a little trickery. Um, but, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that journey through the town is, you know, you're seeing exactly what's there. Yeah. We have a little bit of trickery to connect uh, spaces that are not right, right next to each other. So there is a little bit of trickery there that you can't really see in the film. Okay. But as far as the physical spaces, those are pretty much what we designed. Uh, I, and, and to Andrew's credit, Andrew sent a guy, Caleb Henry, out across uh, the state of Texas and beyond looking for a gym that a 1950s basketball game would have taken place in. And how they ended up in Whitney, because they ended up in Whitney, Texas, 45 minutes from my home before I knew them. And so they ended up there because they had found this gym and the gym was vacant. And they said... Uh, if we redid the floors, uh, that we could shoot there. And so Caleb actually found this high school gym and Andrew fell in love with it. And that's what got, that's what led us to Whitney. And so then, uh, the floors were redone. And, and honestly, that was before I came on board. And then we refinished the rest of the space. And that gym kind of became the heart of the aesthetic because it, it really taught us what we were trying to achieve. And, and we ended up using that gym to build sets in our locker rooms, uh, like ground up sets like you would at a back lot uh, or uh, in, in studio, I mean. And we used every space in that gym as well for a set. I mean, you see it in the opening shot. You go through the exterior, then the lobby, then the basketball gym, all through the stands later, like you were talking about. You go into both of the basketball gyms, locker rooms, right? Where locker rooms that a, a team would use during a game. And the only space in that building that you don't see on camera as we, you know, uh, um, as it was after we rehabbed it was uh, this back locker room where we built one of Everett's radio stations. So we, we had to build the interior of the radio station in two different locations. And one of them was in this locker room and we shot the majority of his dialogue in that locker room. Uh, and then we, then we shot the connecting shots. Uh, one of them in that big scene, we shot that practically on the exterior location where we had rebuilt the set inside of the exterior location so that we could enter from outside and, and go with them. So you could have that experience like you were talking about where you really feel like you're there, you're immersed in this community you know what it's like to grow up in Cayuga when you uh, watch the Vast of Night, you know? Yeah. So is so was the gym actually further away from the switchboard location than it appears in that tracking shot then? You know, the gym is not too much farther away, but the geography of how you get there is different. But but the gym and the the gym and the switchboard are actually pretty similarly located. It's just it's just not exactly the path. 
the the radio station exterior and the gym are in two different towns. Okay, right. So so that's really where you go. You know, if you go back and watch the movie, you you, you can uh, kind of try to examine how that happened. But it's incredibly done, though, mate. It looks amazing. Thanks, brother. Yeah, I mean, wait, it, 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 on that, that was a part of Andrew's vision from the beginning. The single shot that's not led by a character that you you know you establish the geography and there's a certain presence in this shot and uh everybody on the team kept saying let's do it with the drone let's do it with the drone and andrew was vehemently against it he was like i I watch movies too much i know what a drone shot looks like i don't want people to watch this and go well that's a drone shot really well flown drone shot and he insisted on creating kind of a new device uh that's similar to a go-kart but a new device to carry this camera. And then on our shot, there were lots of handoffs. You're on a device. And then as the device is moving, you're moving it to another person who's locking it into another device. And the skill and the passion more than anything, the passion to try to accomplish that kind of shot is so unique. And and so Andrew and, and a few other guys on our team that were that were really non-industry people, people that hadn't done a lot, they kind of had to lead the way. And some of the people that were really experienced are super talented. I work with all the time. They kind of had to take a back seat because we were doing something that they don't traditionally do, you know? And, um, and their minds couldn't really wrap around it. It seemed far-fetched. And then as we do it, as it's accomplished, all of these incredible people who got into this business because they do believe, because they want to tell stories, you see their eyes light up and you see their hearts start to glow and everybody starts to go, this is going to work. And this is like you, when you watch the movie, hopefully you feel this is special. This is a unique moment that I haven't seen that doesn't feel like, I mean, in my opinion, it doesn't feel like showboating. It feels like it's an extension of the story and, and it's always fun for a, a cinephile, hopefully that's what you are, a cinephile that, you know, you get to see something you don't get to see in film and it's serving the story, you know? So here's a question. If the movie had had another five, ten million dollars to play with, do you think it would have been a better movie? I, you know, I think the thing is that you can't say that. That's like That's like saying... I chose left instead of right my senior year of high school. Would I be better off if I had chosen the other direction? Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible. I, I know this is that sometimes people think money is a solution, yeah. but it isn't. It, it's, it's passion. It's knowledge. It's innovation. Um, I, I think that there's a certain threshold uh, of money that re- is required for any movie. And that threshold is different based on the film. And, and I think we barely met the financial threshold that this film could be made for. Like, so I, I think we barely got away with how much we, we made this movie for, but we got away with it first and foremost because of passion, because of deep, deep desire. First with Andrew, then with Caleb Henry, this young kid out of college who's essentially interning, then with Andrew's best friend, Marcus Ross, and his wife, and then with Melissa Kirkendall and Adam Dietrich and, and extended from there, you know, we had this great fortune to find the right people that 
the desire to tell a beautiful story. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, that makes, that makes the money you have go as far as you need it to go. But, uh, but if we had more money on this particular film, would we have settled for things that were more standard? Maybe, who knows? I mean, you know, I love star Wars, but I really like the original star Wars. You know, I, I, I didn't love when we went back and added things to the originals you know, I feel like those limitations that he was faced with originally drove the creativity. And I would say, I would argue the same thing is true here is, is that limitations drove our passion and our creativity. And I don't think we'd have it another way. I think we liked what we did. Well, you've made a, you've made a stunning movie, mate. I really loved it. Thank you. Um, I presume it was shot digitally. Was it the film? Because there is a grain to it. Yeah. That was added. Well, it was partially added. And a Andrew and, and Miguel are better to speak to these things. But we shot on a red uh, that Andrew owned. He was an early adopter to red cameras. And uh, we shot at an exposure that was, you know, kind of pressing the boundaries of the camera. And then Andrew always knew that he was going to go back in and do this series of additions that would help give it a texture that made it feel more authentic to the period. Uh, so, uh, you know, to, to other filmmakers, I mean, if I'm listening to somebody talk about their movie, I'm always, as an industry guy, thinking about the movies that I'm going to make, right? And, and I would just say, in this film, one of the greatest weapons that we had was Andrew having thought through every portion of the movie. Uh, not, not just the shots, but what he ultimately wanted to do with each shot and what he was going to have the finished film look like. He was very thorough from the beginning about uh, what the vision is. And you don't see it, surprisingly. You know, the more access we get to these tools that give us immediate capabilities, the less people invest in themselves. And, and the number one thing that a first-time or a second-time filmmaker can do is invest in themselves, is take the time to plot out every single element of the production work with your team, your core team to envision things before you get your whole crew there and your cast. We, we walked that town so many times. Uh, we walked through Andrew's imagination of what that town would be so many times. Uh, Andrew himself with the actors even rehearsed for, I think two weeks before we shot, which again, on an indie film like ours, I don't know how many sets you've been on, but Oftentimes, actors show up that day, and that's the first time the director and the actor have worked together since their audition, which, I, you know, I can't imagine that. That's, you know, it's a silly idea to me, you know? I can't imagine what our movie would be like if Andrew hadn't had uh, the resilience to pre-imagine everything, to walk us through it a million different ways, and to sit with the actors and rehearse this thing like a theater play. You know, so that when we get on set, we're not wasting time trying to figure out whether we know what emotional direction to go. That work has already been done, and now we're just putting it together, you know? Yeah. Do you know, is it going to be a physical release, like a Blu-ray release down the line? I don't know. We'll have to find out. Yeah. I think I think right now it's it's Amazon Original and on Amazon Prime. And yeah, yeah. Go soak it in there. And, and then, you know, like I think all things, like all things, the more people love it, the more people want it, the more likely it is that we'll get more content from it. You know? yeah. Thank you so much for doing this, mate. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. 
Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, thanks for loving the film. And, you know, get out there and make movies, everybody. It struck me from my conversation with Adam that The Vast of Night is not just a special film despite its limitations. It's a special film because of those limitations. To make a movie for that money, you have to really want to do it. You have to be imaginative and hands-on and surround yourself with people that care. If you want to create a piece of art, whether it's music or a painting or a podcast, don't focus on what you don't have. Think about what you do have to work with. If you're passionate about creating something and willing to put the work in, you might be amazed at what you can achieve. Next up, my chat with Jared Bulmer and Eric Alexander about their beautiful score for the film. The use of music in this movie is another wonderful facet of the film's unique identity. Here's another clip from the film. Yes, we'll let them know. Thank you. Number, please. Yes, we're notifying Highway Patrol. Uh, we'll relay any news to you. Thank you. Thank you. Number, please. Sorry for the wait. All right. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. People are saying there's something in the sky. There he is. Whoa, look at that mustache. <laughs> hey, man. I don't know. I just, it happened, and then I kept it. So I, I don't know. I haven't interacted with a lot of people so we'll see what happens when I start interacting with lots of people in real life. I might have to. And you know what's funny, is Matt, is it was it was it was awkward before to communicate with Jared. Zing, be a whole interview of me jabbing Jared. Yeah, thank, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm here for you. Sorry, Jared, you wish you never called me. Where do you Where do you live, Jared? Are you same area? Yeah, no, actually, I'm currently in Colorado. I do live in Oklahoma City, where Eric, and I recognize very well that studio he's in, but I, right now, I've been in Colorado for three months. I will go back to Oklahoma City at some point, Yeah, but um, I'm here for now, taking great hikes, getting out. Yeah, yeah so the idea is to put together sort of an episode around the film. Um, That's awesome, yeah, great, great idea. Because um, I, just, I just loved it so much. I'm a sucker for narrative that takes place in a in a short space of time you know the idea of it being one night and i mean it's more or less in real time as well isn't it yeah and it's funny that you mentioned that last night my it's funny my oldest son is eight and we were watching et last night randomly and i, I was drawing some parallels from it and i thought wow so much of this is shot in the dark and then I, I can't believe i'm admitting this but it hit me for the first time that vast of night is entirely shot in the dark and eric you know this you you helped out on the movie set too but i the whole thing is shot in a small span of time, very, very close to real time, but it's completely in the dark. I guess you know, in the gym, there's some lights there, but at nighttime. But for some reason, you don't really get that feeling when you're watching the movie. It, it, it's not, you don't really feel like you're, it is a small space, but it's so much larger than that small space. But I, for some reason, it hadn't even occurred to me after three years of working on this, that, oh, the whole thing was at night. So Eric, you, you were on set for some of the film were you? Well, I wouldn't say I was on set, Matt, as much as I was 
in charge of some of the sets. Andrew, who directed the movie, is a friend of mine. He's, well, we actually, Jared and I have both close connection. He's Jared's brother-in-law, ah. but he's also my just old friend. You know, uh, we've done a lot of work together because him being a videographer, he's done work for all sorts of clients around here for years in the commercial realm, which is where I do audio. I do audio for TV and radio commercials. I sing on a bunch of jingles, things like that. So he gets, when he was getting knee deep into this movie, he knew that I like, I'm a kind of just a, a jack of all trades, master of none kind of guy. And he called me to help him track things down because he needed things that were going to look legitimate for the 1950s. Yeah. And I had known a whole lot about 1950s and 60s audio gear and the things that just looked legitimate. So I researched it a little bit because he kind of set me off on my own with a little bit of a budget to buy some things. And I started driving to different states to pick up phone switchboards. I mean, I bought those switchboards in my Jeep, you know, and drove them back home. Wow. Uh, I I bought all the reel-to-reel stuff in the 50s scene that you see where Jake's in the in the broadcast booth. I built that booth. I had to custom order those tiles and glue them. And I had to, I had to custom cut metal that made those turntables look like that was a legit 50s scenario. But I made all that in Texas in an old gym. So I got to work on that and do kind of what I was joking with Jared calling grunt work. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I mean, really, I, I ate at Chicken Express and drank a ton of sweet tea for about three or four days. And I, so I'm in Texas and I built that set. But then after we got the tower erected and all that stuff, you know, uh, that's on the radio station, I left and I came home and, and kind of the project was over for me for a while. And then a year later, I hear from... Uh, Andrew later, and he said, okay, man, we're ready to score it now. And I thought, well, okay, man, great. This is actually what I do, you know? And uh, he said, and you're, we're going to be working with my, uh, with my brother-in-law a little bit. And I thought, well, who's your brother-in-law? You know, like, what, what, what's this guy going to do? You know? And, uh, and then when Jared came in, I realized Jared's like a legitimate, classically trained tuba player, and he is everything that I am not. And this is going to do nothing but make it better because I am, I do everything and program and, uh, and, and write and compose all by ear. And Jared can bring to the table everything that I can't. So it, it, it was great for us to be together to work on this with Andrew, who is very anal, you know? So uh, he had a hand in everything we worked on, but that probably was way too many words to answer your questions. So I'll, I'll stop there. It's great. We'll we'll just we'll just chat, and I'll I'll use I'll use what I can. But I'm I'm as a, just as a fan, I'm I'm loving hearing it myself. So it's it's brilliant, and you you did a, you just did a great job at making it look so tactile and 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 authentic. It looks amazing. Well, those guys that he used for uh, post production that came in and really put the final details on those on just the scenery, you know. Uh, they, they really did a wonderful job. I don't know who they are. I can't speak for them. Jared may know more than I do. But yeah, in the end, it just looked tremendous. And the guys, I gave it up to Sierra McCormick and Jake for doing the, uh, their homework to actually be able to operate reel-to-reel machinery and, and um, you know, switchboards uh, to make it look like they were really children of the 50s. You know, it, it was very legitimate looking. So, Jared, you, I noticed, I feel like there's not a lot of tuba in this movie, which is, which is why when I, when I, when I was researching you and I found, 
you know, I found a guy called Jao Bulma who was a musician, but it's like, oh, he's a, he's a tuba player. I feel like there would be more tuba in this movie if it was him. And so I, I kind of wasn't sure at first. So what was the kind of division of labour? At what point did you come into a process and how... And how did you kind of, was there a division of labour or when you got to the scoring part, was it just totally collaborative? I would say it was collaborative from the beginning. And, you know, honestly, to your point, I am, a, you know, I started playing tuba at a relatively young age and, and being a professional tuba player for a lot of years, you, you kind of get to a place where you realise nobody ever says they want more tuba. That's n- <laughs> that nobody, nobody says that except tuba players. So I know my tuba playing buddies were bummed, but... You know, when it came time to put this together, it, it wasn't going to be a tu- tour de force of the tuba. But th- the whole thing was collaborative from the beginning. I mean, this whole experience has been a very uh, just a reminder of the randomness of life. You know, I just happen to be fortunate to be, you know, my sister is married to Andrew. And so we've known each other now for, for, for a number of years, 10, 15, 20, I don't know how long, 20 years maybe. And, we, you know, we've talked a lot over the years uh, uh, just about music, about film, about art. And, you know, many late nights of, I remember when, you know, he was in his early twenties and we talk and, and we talk about film and I thought either this guy is, he's either a lunatic or he's a genius and I can't figure it out which one he is because he's, he's saying things that I'm going to go out and I'm going to make this kind of movie. And I'm thinking, that's just nuts, man. Like, I don't know how you're going to do that and who's going to watch it. So we've, we've had many late nights of just talking about these things. And when we got to the point of shooting the movie, when we talk about divisional labor, you know, to, to Eric's point, I came in at the very end, you know, uh, here, here's some, here are some parts of the, the film that take a look at what do you think? And, and, and in terms of what we were looking at, at least where I came in was there was the scene that people talk about sort of as the go-kart scene. It's that five minute uninterrupted scene through the, yeah. right. And so it goes through the gym and sort of magically. It's astonishing. Right. It's astonishing. And, yeah. and I think he was keeping that under wraps for a while, how he did that. I think it's out and out there now in the, in the ether and you can figure out how that was done, how it was stitched a little bit. Um, that was one of the main ones. Um, another one was the Mabel theme with the old woman. And the third one was the climax of, of the movie. Those were the three he said, here, here's what I'm looking for. Let's go. And so he said, send me a lot of, of, of things that you like and you think could work for this sort of a movie. This is what we're looking at. And so I just sent him recording after recording after recording. And he'd come back and say, no, I don't know. I'd send him stuff by Debussy, stuff by Rachmaninoff, stuff by Satie, stuff, you know, American composers, all different genres, classically oriented. And he'd come back and say, I like this, I don't like that, I like this. And so we kind of whittled it down over time to get to a place where he said, this is, this is kind of what I'm looking for. And then we just sketched out some stuff. And here was the fun part, um, for, at least for me. Uh, we were able to really do a lot of experimentation. So I, I sketched out some things. And to Eric's point, I am a classically trained musician. For me, it's all about, or at least historically, it's been about you play the notes on the page, you play them very well, you play them very in tune, you play them with each other at a high level. And so the only part of this entire score that was that was Mabel's theme, the the, the old woman. We I wrote that on, got the parts written out and we had a cellist play it and that was it. Everything else were just sketches and we improvised within the recording sessions and worked on it. And that was the fun part about it is taking just these basic ideas and then making them work for what Andrew wanted. We'd, we'd kind of fiddle around with something and he'd say, no, no, oh, but that. And then we'd kind of go with that. So that's where Eric and I together in the moment were able to, it was a pretty cool collaboration between Eric and I, I would say, because I brought in the, 
here are the ideas and you know this is kind of the scoring I want. And he'd say, oh, this is what we could do with that. And here's how we're gonna engineer it and add it and make it fuller. And so that's where the, the more organic process came in. And I would say that that was the more exciting part of this process was doing this in an organic space. And back to the randomness of life, if we'd have known that this movie would have been as big of a deal as it was, I would have pleaded needed for more studio time because we only had a few shots at this and man there would have been some things we could have done better or differently but we're proud of what we did and i'm not trying to say that we're not but who would have known you know that, that this would have been what it was based on the amount of time that we were able to to spend on it the music is so diverse as well because you've kind of got the the theme to the the tv program which is kind of sort of this kind of desert guitar thing and You've got a scene um, near the start where there's like a walk and talk through the streets and there's there's some really quiet, almost like mandolin sounding uh, part, which is buried really low in the mix. And there's um, the bit where they're doing uh, the interviews in the car park, which sounds like almost like a Steve Reich kind of clapping thing. That was so fun. That was that was just the three of us. That was Andrew, too, I think. Right, Eric? It was the three of us just doing uh-huh. clapping it's, yeah. Yeah, and then you've got you've got the kind of woodwindy kind of blossoming sound, and you've got the sort of striking violin part that comes in, and uh, one of my favourite bits is just those two piano chords that you use when you first hear the sound, you know, the sound. Yeah. You've got just those two chords. It's like how are those two chords not been used before? <laughs> you know? Isn't that interesting? Those two chords. That's a tight minor chord going to a more open major sounding chord and that was the, the the basis of so much and and again this is a testament to andrew coming in he uses those two chords from the very beginning right really early on as as sort of this sort of shadowing motif to the climax but that was the climax mm-hmm. is those built on those two chords and when we got to the climax we recorded that you know that kind of sprawls out into something else a little bit more with some more effects and everything but those two chords we use that from the beginning and what's interesting about that is in terms, of, in terms of the way it's structured, overall, you, you actually named so many of the different parts of it. But those two chords, here's the ironic thing. I'm not a pianist. I, the only time I've played piano was in music theory in college. And so I played those little things and was able to sort of hack it out. But we used it. And then, and then Eric comes back and says, hey, why don't we put the violinist on top of that? And when, you, when you talk about those low plucks, that's just, isn't that your wife, Eric? My wife is on it and, uh, and Kyle Billingham. Some of the things that sound kind of very tension at field jared you would probably agree that kyle doesn't have as much of a classical background as the other people that are on here but it made him perfect for this because he just kind of his little trills and stuff they carry a little bit of an uncertainty like this kind of like like you know like a train that can easily derail kind of thing and that feeling goes throughout everything that he plays on and it is perfect for it you know so we ended up using a lot of kyle's tracks you know, as opposed to using someone who would only be able to play what was on a page. Kyle was the kind of guy that just telling to play a feeling, you know. Totally. And to that point, Kyle, um, he was the one to you named so many of the different points there, Matt. I just realized my uh, my the name of my Zoom is Bulmer Children. I should maybe they use this for their online. Uh, I'll leave it. Why who's rolling with it? So sorry, you know, Matt, we're we're everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> uh, stay on the page here. So, you know, another one that was really wonderful was this arpeggiated thing that's at the beginning of the trailer, and that that happens a few different times. It's just 
it's just Kyle playing this arpeggiated chord in the violin, and there's just a little bit of low tuba underneath, and then Eric added some additional sounds to kind of fill it out. But you know, there are the diversity is wonderful. A lot of the the early the 1950s deserty stuff that was Eric. Eric just playing that stuff. The clapping part that were just us clapping hockets and and Eric kind of strumming some different things. So there were so many different points in it that were, again, I would say specifically about Andrew having a vision about what he wanted. The one thing that was that we worked with was that the go-kart scene he had in mind there's a soundtrack that michael giacchino did that's really wonderful and it's it's a self-contained 12-minute piece and he had that in mind said okay listen to this and then do something that is not exactly that and that's what we use for that to to kind of create that which is wonderful and then um going into the mabel theme i guess i gotta admit this one of the pieces that's always been really important to me is beethoven's uh, seventh symphony's second movement which is this real it's this pulsing it's all strings pulsing and i i mean if you go back and listen to beethoven's second second uh, seventh symphony second movement and then listen to the mabel theme i think you're going to see that they're very similar but i don't think beethoven would mind at this point he's long gone so yeah so eric in terms of the stuff that's feeding into your influences are you coming from a, a classical background are you are you coming from somewhere totally different yeah i mean i I grew up in Southeast Oklahoma when we were very poor. I did not have any lessons of any kind. Uh, so I definitely did not come from the, I definitely didn't come from the same kind of background as Jared. I mean, I had a, I had a next door neighbor who lived in a trailer house that taught me how to play guitar, you know, that was in a rock band. So I grew up playing in rock bands. The composing kind of thing all started to come about when I, got heavily into commercial music, had having to make music for clients that would match a feeling and then have a tagline and sell a brand, you know, or a car, a car dealership or a, a hospital or a train, an Amtrak, or, I mean, all these different clients I had, that kind of shaped me into being able to, uh, to be able to compose a little better. The beauty of this movie is that I got to use all those things whatever ammo I have or whatever skill set I have, I got to use most of it because it was, it was very diverse. Like you said, there were times when we just did off the cuff things like clapping and just making ethereal weird sounds to times where I sat in here by myself with a, an old Stratocaster and tried to make a, a full mix of bass, drums and guitar sound like a 50 song with no lyrics. So it could play in the background. I know that how did you feel questions are a bit stupid, but what was it like seeing the, finished cut of a movie for the first time it was surreal to see it up on amazon page and this and to pull up amazon and see vast of night and know that's something we've worked on that was a moment that i thought wow that's really that's remarkable but up until that point it's such a it's such a long drawn out process you know i'd been seeing like you know andrew sent me the film before it had any sound design any any of this, any of the special effects from the VX guys in you know South America that came in to do the spaceship and the things at the end, I didn't, I didn't, I saw it from very bare bones. So it was this organic process that just kind of built and built and built and built. And even when he dropboxed it to me at some point, and said, "This is basically it," and I watched it. Okay, and then so there, there, it was such an organic, slow process that I can't say there was one moment until oh wow, that's right there on Amazon and that it kind of hit as like, wow, this is really kind of a neat deal. Yeah, same for you, Eric. Obviously, I think Jared was able to converse with Andrew more in the midst of all, all that stuff and be, uh, I, Jared was a lot more in tune with what Andrew was working on and what they were editing and 
you know, kind of tightening up than I was. Uh, so I had a little bit of the opposite experience. When I watched the movie, I was blown away because I hadn't, you know, I would just, I'm just used to being the, the, uh, the hired gun, you know? I mean, I work on something that day and the next day I'm on to something else and I kind of forget about it. And maybe it's, uh, maybe uh, a little bit of my ADD is a little bit of a gift because I'm able to just jump up from one thing to the next. But I had kind of put it a little bit out of sight, out of mind until Andrew sent me uh, a link that probably that same link to watch the movie. And then all of a sudden I'm remembering, Oh, this is that scene with that session where we worked on that one piece, you know, and uh, Whoa, here's, I didn't know he was going to use this, this epic thing, you know, toward the end, or it, it was all new to me. So it was, I was just mind blown because when you work in music, Matt, it is everything, everything that you do from playing in bands to talking with labels to doing live shows to everything. There's always this big hope that something is coming around the corner. That's going to put your name on the map, you know, and being a, um, a Christian, I don't really care about that stuff. I've given up on it a long time ago. I, whatever kind of pipe dreams I had of my youth of being some famous rock singer or whatever, are, are, I'm perfectly happy doing what I'm doing now and not being the famous rock singer. So uh, anything that actually comes to fruition is really just the icing, icing on the cake. It was already fun just to work on it, whether the film would have had any success or not. But uh to see it and then see all the reviews and all that stuff. It was just, uh, I was, I was blown away. And then to see Jared and I's name on IMDb, <laughs> it was really cool. You know, it was really, really cool. Is there anything that we we've missed that you feel is, is going to be particularly interesting to the show? Is it, is it, is there territory that I, that I've sort of glossed over that we should talk about? I have one. I, Cause you know, when you reached out, I thought, it's cool. I'm so happy that you reached out. I think what's cool about this movie is that it's it's so low budget. It's so organic. You know, uh, Eric's sitting there right now in the stu studio that he built. It's just a little shack that he himself built. We never had more than three musicians in there at a time. There was, I think, a total of seven total people that either played or wrote music on this film. And 95% of the film is real humans you know and then eric's putting in all these great you know engineering effects to, to really round it out but you know we're all in there different times this place that eric built this is a very homegrown organic experience that a lot of people worked on and i think andrew did a really great job of utilizing those to sort of tell his story in a way that didn't look low budget i mean it, it but at the same time there's imperfections and i think this is the thing i wanted to address is that there's things within the soundtrack that are imperfect. This is not hyper-polished. And I think that that is so wonderful. One of the things in general is how you go back and listen to it. And Eric, this is really your doing. But you, there's so much of it when like a chordal hit. You talk about those that two-chord theme we use a lot. A chordal hit and then something will come over it a second later. It doesn't hit exactly with it. It happens a lot in the, in the scene with the go-kart. happens a lot. Uh, in the climax scene, but these mo these moments will happen where the sound will hit, and then and instead of the other instruments hitting with it, it hits just slightly afterwards. So there's, and, and as, coming from a classical background, my initial reaction was like, ah, it needs to be together. <laughs> together. But there's this nice flux about it, and even when, you know, there's a scene where uh, Everett, the the lead, is 
at the radio station and he's going through all these reels to try and find the reel with the sound on it. And in, in a movie that's more predictable, he would have found that reel, like the second reel maybe, right? He would have found it. But it took him like seven, eight reels to find it, right? So he's just, he's just going. And Andrew uses that as a tool to further the story. They're having a conversation. And that's, what, you know, a, a more predictable movie. He finds it the second time around and then you get and you see it. So there's that imperfection to it. And so even... You know, with Kyle, the fiddler, he's playing these high harmonics and you get these artifacts, like a little screech of a, of a violin string that, uh, you know, in a studio musician say, oh, we got to do that again. There was a screech there. But we left those in, these little imperfections that are, I think, really indicative to the, the movie as a whole. It's, it's a really beautiful movie and it's polished in its own way, but there's all this imperfection that kind of is in flux with, within it that I think really captures what Andrew was going for. There was a moment in one of the shots when I was looking at one of the rough cuts and I said, uh, it was, I think Andrew was running up with the, cause you know, also Andrew filmed a lot of it. And I think he filmed almost all of it himself. And um, he, there was a shot where he's running up to the car and, and the camera's kind of wobbly. And I said, Oh, you're going to, you're going to track that, right? You're going to stabilize that. And he's like, no, you know, there's, there's so much of it. He just left, you know, he's, it's, it's okay. You know, the main part is the narrative. The main part is, is the story and what we're creating. And he obviously succeed. I mean, according to people who enjoy the film, he, he succeeded at it. Yeah, um, Eric, is there anything is there anything we've we've missed that that you wanted to you wanted to add? I've worked with a lot of clients, uh, not not movie makers, you know, uh, uh, some, uh, but the I've never had anybody that has been like Andrew <laughs> just to just to shine a light on him for a minute. I mean this. He just knows what he likes and knows what he wants and he will uh, he can sometimes put it into words and uh, and, uh, you know, explain it to you to a point where you can you can perfectly construct what it is. that's on his brain. And sometimes you can't and you have to kind of figure it out. But he's willing to be here with you until he hears whatever it is that is striking his imagination. And it was really kind of, uh, he'd probably tell you it's, it's annoying at times to, to some people. And then uh, it's also very satisfying to know that when someone leaves, you got exactly what they wanted because they told you. I just, that's really kind of my closing remark is it's great to, if you're going to, if you want to work successfully in doing uh, uh, anything for someone creatively, uh, you know, don't always shy away from having them with you. It's not face-to-face things. We avoid phone calls these days, but having people with you, there's always benefit having them there. Yeah. Thanks. This has been great, guys. Thanks so much. I've loved it. Thanks for having us, Matt, man. It was a blast. And um, I'll let you know when the episode is out and stuff if you want to check it out. Would love to. Would love to. I just listened to the one, um, your last one. Just, just this morning. Stuart Copeland. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was great. Oh, thanks, mate. What? How did I not know this? <laughs> Jared. Be, I had to do a little homework. I don't know what, what, oh, what we're doing. Oh, should okay. check out. It's a great episode. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. And um, look after yourselves, all right? Yeah, keep up the good work, man. All right. Adios. Bye. Indeed. All right, you Cheers. too. fascinating that once again we have this idea that limitations or even what could be viewed as imperfections help give a vast of night its identity and the score is another testament to hands-on approach and versatility required to pull off a project like this if you look at the music credits at the end of the film the name Colton Turner pops up a few times 
Colton is a young musician enthralled to the golden age of rockabilly and early rock and roll in the late 50s. As mentioned at the start, he perhaps can't shed a great deal of light on the movie itself. His songs weren't written for the movie as such, but his music is part of the sonic identity of the vast of night. And I had a great time hanging out with him and his brother with a beer at their place in Austin, Texas, via the wonders of video conference. Are you solely dependent on the sort of Colton Turner brand or are you working on sort of films and other musical projects as well? We are actually, so it's still the same band, but we decided to go to a new band name just because it's more of like a band thing. It's like me, my brother, and then two of our buddies, Jerry and Jack, we all play in the same band and we have forever. And so we decided to go to a band name now, but it's the same lineup and everything. Uh, we're going to be called The Mellows. Okay. We were like, I had a band name before, but when we moved to Austin, Texas, it was like a little bit different lineup. So we just started using my name for a while, but we're probably going back to the band name. So have you seen the finished Vast of Night? Have you seen it? I haven't seen the whole thing. Everybody else in the band has seen it pretty much. <laughs> my brother's seen it. Everybody else has seen it. I've seen parts of it, but I still need to sit down and watch it. How did you become involved in the film? You know, who was it? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, there's somebody else here, actually. So, you know, I'm not just talking to myself. Hey, man. Hey. There's a couple people around Austin that, like, work in, like, making, like, movies and stuff. I don't really know any of their names. But they're friends with some of uh, our friends, I guess, just since they've been in town forever. And I forget her name, but she was looking around town for people that do, like, kind of era-fitting stuff, like, kind of 50s or 60s things. I guess a bunch of our buddies that we just know from playing they playing bands too they recommended us so she kind of just came to us and asked if we wanted to be in the thing like yeah totally i mean it's such an evocative movie because it so all takes place in in one night and it's, it's more or less in real time as well it's something like it's like 95 minutes condensed down to 90 minutes so if you've not seen it you do you know how your songs have been used or is that still a surprise uh it's a little bit of a surprise to me do you know Xander? i you, watched you, it yeah yeah he watched it he's watched the whole thing so it's going to be a surprise to me. I imagine maybe like on the radio or something, if I had to guess. Are you playing on the songs, Zan, as well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I do. Uh, He's the lead guitar player. Guitar. Right. Okay. And I'm his brother. Mm-hmm. Cool to meet you, man. So am I guessing that your songs were used, yeah, in, in the radio context? Are you are you some of the songs that are playing on the radio? Is that the is that where your songs appear? Yeah. 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 yeah that's and then, it. During one other, I think one part when they're walking around in the, I think they're doing interviews in cars and they're testing out their tape machine, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's when I, I, I heard it in that. And then one scene where she was doing the switchboard on the radio, you know? Yeah. That's when I heard them. Oh, it was pretty cool. I guess um, in the nicest possible way, they were probably looking for music that seemed authentic, but without... I guess you know the budget. It was kind of a, a very small budget movie, so I oh yeah. So I guess you kind of, in the nicest possible way, kind of filled a financial need, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Probably exactly what happened. Yeah, <laughs> cheaper than rent, cheaper than doing a Buddy Holly song. Yes, probably Perry, cheaper you know? than Elvis or something. If I had to guess, a yeah. Bit. yeah. But there's there's a real authenticity to what you do what do they use songs from the two albums or did you record new stuff they are from our two older albums yeah i'm pretty sure yeah the first one yeah from the first and second album uh-huh. so it's stuff that already existed they just kind of went through and picked what they thought would be good for what they needed and asked if they would be okay like hey use whatever you want it's interesting though, because i guess you it was recorded in a pretty authentic way you recorded to reel to reel didn't you like a proper vintage reel to reel tape machine 
Yeah, exactly. We recorded it down at a place called Fort Horton Studios. This guy named Billy Horton. He's got like all kinds of old 50s and 60s and earlier gear. And so everything we recorded was just um, on one track. So it's just live take, you record it, and that's it. Yeah, reel to reel, just one shot. So if you mess up, you just got to rewind and try it again. Yeah, and you can't you can't mix afterwards, obviously, then, in that situation. No, no not really. Like, he kind of has to, like, mix everything on the fly. Like, he kind of, like, gets the levels going, and then he, like, he has to learn the song, too, which is kind of cool. It's, like, a more, like, a team thing. So, like, if there's a part where maybe you want, like, more reverb or something, like, you can kind of turn it up while we're playing or mess with it as it goes. But once it's once it's done, it's over. That's the take. How far do you take the authenticity? Are you using, like, amps from a period and, and vintage guitars? Or do you, is, does it come a point where you have to compromise, I guess? Uh, it's mainly newer guitars, I guess. Yeah. Like, I like older ones, too, but, like, they're still making them the way they used to back in the day. So I just buy, like, the new model, whatever I like, which is usually, like, an older style one anyways. But the only thing I'm kind of into for, like, old equipment is, like, old drums. I think old drums sound pretty good, so... Use the old drums, but besides that, newer guitars and stuff are good. Except for the bass. Bass man, what gear do you use? Uh, I don't know. Old nice. equipment, new equipment? It's a mix of both. You got a 40 uh, upright and a new electric bass. So. A little bit of both. <laughs> a little bit of both, yeah. That's, that's how it's done right there. <laughs> Whatever we can afford. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, about so you are your parents back in California? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We're all from like, well, originally from like, uh, like Bakersfield, I guess, but we didn't really grow up there. Mainly San Diego. All three of us from San Diego. Right. Do you get back there much? Yeah. Here and there, like maybe once or twice a year, whenever we can make it out there. It's nice seeing everybody. How did it sort of go down with your family back home, sort of the concept of moving to Austin and pursuing music? Was it a, Was it sort of a tricky thing to convince them that it was a good idea you know no not really actually they're really supportive of it we were just kind of like decided uh there's like a pretty pretty good scene for music in san diego but it's more like i, I don't know maybe like indie stuff and maybe like hip-hop or something but in austin it's more like kind of honky tonk and like roots rock and roll which is more close to what we do so one of our buddies actually had a couple rooms opening up so we just decided to go out there and give it a shot it's kind of on a whim and it worked out all right so far yeah, we actually, we just recorded a whole album. Um, we have like a little home studio. Should we see a little studio in our house? Here's here's the tour. Here we go. So just last uh, last month, our buddy Jack, the drummer, came out. And we have a little studio set up at our house because you can't really go anywhere right now. So we have, can you see this? Yep. Drums, some amps and whatnot. And then we bought this big old recording machine here. Oh, wow. Oh, did I get it? There we go. That's incredible. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But we actually just recorded a whole nother album and we're trying to get it together right now. So maybe in a month or two, we'll have a whole nother record out. Yeah. That's the plan anyways. But it's going to be under the, the new band name, The Mellows. Okay. You guys are living the dream, aren't you? That's, you've got a great setup there. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. Have you got tolerant neighbors? Yeah, yeah, and we live, like, a little bit away from everybody. Like, we are we have, like, a little house by ourselves. It's not an apartment or anything, so it works okay. Gavin, so do, do you own the rights to all your music? It's not licensed to anyone? Yeah, just us. DIY style. I wondered if I could put a song at the end of the episode. Oh, yeah, totally. Is there anyone in particular you're thinking? Uh, I was thinking maybe Norma Jean, unless you've got something from the new record you want to, that's ready. That'd be cool. 
Yeah, we have a couple. We can send you over a few. That would be good. We have a couple brand new ones we can send your way for sure. Great, and I'll put it. I'll put it on the end of the episode. That'd be sweet. It was cool seeing it go from. We we didn't get to watch it till it was was on Amazon, and we didn't hear anything back from them for a year. Or so yeah, and then all of a sudden we see the the preview for it, and it's like, whoa! Remember that movie that we had some songs on? Yeah, we didn't know what was going to happen with it. We thought it'd just do like a little short, like kind of small film festival run, but I guess it did pretty good on all the smaller ones that got picked up. Yeah, it was it was cool seeing it go to the the mainstream. You know, mm -hmm. easier to to access. And I guess they're uh, playing it at some drive-ins too. So if you could watch it at a drive-in, that would be killer. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Yeah, we appreciate it. Last of Night is out now on Amazon Prime Movies. And that's almost our show. Thanks this week to all our fantastic guests, whose opinions of their own, and everyone else that made this episode possible, the folks at Amazon and Carolyn Anthony. Stay tuned to hear I Know I Don't Know by The Mellows. Colton Turner and The Mellows can be found on Facebook by searching Colton, C-O-L-T-O-N, Turner. Please rate the podcast and subscribe and check out the growing back catalogue of episodes. You can find me on Twitter at Signals Podcast and on Instagram at Sending Signals Podcast. Bye for now.
you're still here i just wanted to share a little bit more of my conversation with adam dietrich it's not really about the movie but on a personal level it was quite meaningful so how did that how did that start i'm sorry you said you're a cleaner what does that mean i clean blocks of flats i hoover and oh okay yeah 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 you clean you clean people's homes and stuff i'm literally a cleaner yeah so yeah. how do you go from that or or during that how, what what inspires you to go, I'm going to start a podcast, and then how do you go about that? I've been a huge music fan since I was a kid, you know. Yeah. I listen to a lot of podcasts at work as well, so um, I love the medium of... And again, I grew up fascinated by radio, you know. It, one of the reasons yeah. I love The Vast of Night is I, I grew up listening to, sure. um, you know, old British comedy shows from the 50s and stuff, and, you know, I, I love the audio medium. And uh, I just thought, oh, I'm going to try doing it. And I, I pitched this, started pitching this show about creativity and contacting people. And I think there's this sweet spot with podcasts where it was becoming apparent that they were this sort of cultural phenomenon and important. But maybe people didn't realise that anyone really could just start a podcast. <laughs> so, and then now when I'm approaching people, it's like, you know, we've already had on, you know, these people you know this many people so i think it's just presenting yourself well being willing just to just to have the front to do it you know and um yeah it takes some guts if you've got a front to do it it's amazing what you can accomplish you know a couple accomplish you know so true so last friday i watched the vast of night the day it came out had no connection to any of you didn't know where to start Loved the film and just had to start from scratch, reaching out to people. And Jake replied to a message and he put me in touch with his agent, who's put me in touch with you. And I managed to find an email address for Jared, who worked on the score. And so I emailed him at work yeah. and he got back to me. And <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's hustling, man, you know. <laughs> I love it. I love it, dude. So, uh, Matt, that's so awesome, man. That is so great, dude. Well, I'm, I can't wait. I'm going to, I'm going to, I need to listen to your podcast. And I just, you know, it's so cool that you were, uh, you motivated yourself to do this and you found the way up the mountain to do it. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's so cool. Are you, are you, is, is it something that you, uh, make any income from right now or is it still something that you're just it's just passion no, I, I put it out I as always as, as you probably know you know if, if I just try and make something that I'm proud of and I'm interested in yeah and if yeah uh, if my wife loves it and my father-in-law loves it and you know that's great yeah I mean I want it to do well yeah, I yeah. really do but there is there yeah. is so much content out there and I don't yeah. really have thousands to invest in promoting it and i'm reliant on guests putting it on their social media when it comes out and word of mouth and it's it's really hard to get traction so it's trying not to be defined by external success and just 
letting it be its own reward, you know, which which isn't is easier said than done. But sure, um, yeah, it's been lovely. So I can't I can't complain, you know. In your podcast, do you announce to your audience at any point that you're a cleaner and that you do this? It's it it has I have mentioned it during an interview that yeah that's I'm a cleaner so yeah it has yeah bits of me do do creep in yeah I love it I I, I my one thing is I tell more people who you are you yeah. know like I I know I fell I fell in love with Oprah Winfrey because I know her she she taught me who she is she exposed that and then I went on the journey with her from being you know uh, a little known entity to being you know one of the foremost voices of our time yeah so i love i love that you're a cleaner i love that you're you're doing this and you self-motivated yourself and you're you're finding the the value in it as you go and not letting uh some predestined value determine it it's freaking awesome bro thank you man thanks adam i'm matt royal i'm a cleaner i'll see you next time